deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. This first email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I've been studying in my drug and alcohol program, and I have become hyper aware of my psychology. And I seem to want to diagnose myself with all, all kinds of things in the DSM. I actually have a history of trauma, but I've never been treated for it. I find myself doing, I find myself, I find myself diagnosing myself with a bunch of different disorders, and now I'm paranoid that there's something really wrong with me. What do you think about that? I need help. Uh, Good question. Yeah, this is a common thing for, well, first off, let's introduce the podcast. This is the, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Yeah, anonymous patron, good questions. These are um, common problems for grad students in the helping professions when they take a psychopathology course. I remember my classmates doing this when I was in graduate school in the mid-90s. I don't remember doing it myself, though, although I do remember that I did, for the first time, realize what I had been suffering from, which was panic disorder, prior to taking my psychopathology class in, I believe, 1994-ish, maybe early 1995, I had been experiencing a lot of very perplexing symptoms that I thought had to do with, I don't know, some sort of general craziness and maybe a heart condition. And upon learning about panic disorder and and anxiety disorders in general, I realized, oh, I was suffering from this very low-grade mental condition called panic disorder. because, And it made me feel so much better because what I thought I was suffering from was something that would kill me or I was going to go insane or something. And so uh, I do remember that. I do remember when we got to the anxiety chapter and we studied panic, I was like, oh, wow. Well, that that makes me feel a lot better. So I do remember that. So to answer your question, you know, you're, you're you're in a drug and alcohol program, you're taking classes on the DSM. And you're like, oh my God, I have a whole bunch of diagnoses. Well, first off, we need to discuss what the DSM means exactly. If you're not aware, the DSM is our diagnostic Bible that all mental professionals use. And it just contains labels. They're not actual things. I've talked about this on the podcast before. In the in biology, in the in the in the medical field, when you are diagnosed with a tumor in your colon, they can find the tumor. Tumor. They can go to the tumor in your body and take a, you know, a, a bio sample and do some tests under a mic- microscope and actually determine, yes, you have cancer in your colon. When you are diagnosed with a DSM, quote-unquote, diagnosis, there is no such physical evidence. It's all based on a, 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 a clinician uh, interviewing or testing. And these tests, again, we use words like tests, but they're more like an investigator trying to figure something out. They're not, you know, when you do a, a lab test for your cholesterol, these are, these are 
a different kind of test. You, you know, there's no opinion in there. You send it, doctor, you know, physicians don't argue about how much cholesterol was in the blood sample because the uh, method of measuring that has been proven to or demonstrated to be reliable. And so physicians say, okay, well, that's what it says then that's what it, that's what we're going to go with whereas in my field you get 10 clinicians in a room and they look at the exact same patient they're, you're going to see different diagnostic opinions and therefore the tests quote unquote tests that we conduct to determine if someone has a diagnosis they're not they're not hard science it's it's a matter of trying to triangulate certain things, and a lot of opinion comes into play. Now, some people fit very easily within a diagnostic category. For example, when I had my panic, my, my panic attacks, I was classic. There was really nothing ambiguous about it. It was, it was a classic panic disorder. Well, actually, one could say I had PTSD, actually, and I was experiencing... Um, panic in the midst of PTSD, I suppose. But, but anyway, there are some things that most clinicians will say, yeah, you know, that that's what that looks like. But again, it's not a hard science. It's based on uh, what we have constructed. And over time, we have constructed different diagnostic labels and categories and systems. And so the same person being diagnosed by a a mental health person in the 60s might have found something different than they would today because they had different categories back then. So it, it it's not a hard science, like I said. They're just labels. They're not actual things. The, the reason why we have the DSM, so people say, well, why have the DSM? It's all a bunch of bullshit. And I'm just like, no, you don't understand how the DSM works. If we didn't have the DSM, we would just develop some other way of communicating with each other. And that's all the DSM is, is that it helps clinicians to communicate with, with one another and researchers to communicate with one another. When instead of uh, um, talking about every patient in this long form manner, we can categorize their experiences into small into small phrases like this person suffering from major depressive disorder. And instead of saying, let me tell you the history of this person's life and all of the, the symptoms, so to speak, that they are complaining of. Um, that's all that these labels are. They just provide a quick way of being able to communicate. Plus it provides a quick way of categorizing different kind of presenting problems that people come in. And it also helps us to devise treatment plans and to test those treatment plans and research. If we didn't have these labels like major depression, we wouldn't have any way of knowing what sort of treatments work for what sort of presenting problems that people come in, come in with. And so it's just a labeling system, of a, a rough um, categorization of symptoms that people will present with. And for uh, and and it's a way for us to communicate with each other to do research and to develop treatment plans but that's all that it is and frequently with my supervisees and students when i ask them to assess a patient that they're working with i i ask them to absolutely demonstrate that they can diagnose and they can do that systematically and do it well it's actually a learned skill it takes years to develop but i i also ask them to 
you know, that that's just part of the picture, you know, that, that the diagnosis, although something that, you know, funding and insurance companies focus on solely us as clinicians, we, that would be really ridiculous because people are much more complex than that. And people exist in a system, in a culture and in circumstance. And therefore, you know, just understanding their quote unquote diagnosis is, um, a little silly. The reason why I'm putting diagnosis in quotes in this discussion is that the the word diagnosis to most people and even to many mental health people implies some kind of hard science, right? When I fall off the roof and I break my arm, there's a diagnosis of a broken arm and you can do that within it. You can measure it with an x-ray and, you know, you have a diagnosis broken arm. When you have leukemia, that's a, there's a diagnosis of leukemia. Well, when you're diagnosed with a um, any kind of label in the DSM, that is a different experience and a different philosophical undertaking. And so it, it just um, is important to that's why I'm quoting diagnosis. Okay. The other thing, anonymous patron, that you should know is that you're in a drug and alcohol program, which I'm guessing means that you're not learning how to uh, properly diagnose people. You're probably learning about the DSM because in your drug and alcohol program, you need to know a little bit about it because in uh, your work, you're going to be diagnosing people with substance use disorders. And so you need to know those. And plus, you probably need to know generally the other categories of of disorders that are um, that we have decided to to label and discuss. But I'm I'm guessing that as a drug and alcohol person, you're not being trained and won't be qualified to actually diagnose people outside of those substance use disorders. So take that in consideration. You're you're not, and my guess is you're not really getting the full education of a of a diagnostician. And so, and even though even some people who have that full um, training they have a difficult time diagnose, diagnosing people themselves because it's a very complicated thing, particularly the more, di- the more complicated disorders. Also, another thing to know is that just reading the symptoms in the DSM and reading this short little introduction, it will not help you understand how to diagnose people. Again, particularly the more complicated ones. Um, yet if you read the diagnostic criteria for... Um, say, borderline personality disorder, that is a far cry from being able to diagnose someone with borderline. I know clinicians who have been working in the field for 10 or 20 years and, you know, for the most part, know how to diagnose people. They know what borderline personality disorder is. But in my experience, uh, many people do not know how to diagnose that. And it takes a specialist, takes someone who really understands that disorder, really understands the history of the label, the the way people present, the the course that it presents over time, how to understand differential diagnoses. And so just, you know, I, I'm imagining you're in a drug and alcohol program, you took a class on the DSM, you know, you're for a few months, you're reading the DSM, and the DSM is... Eight, 700, 800 pages long. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, um, 
a lot to cover in a class. And so I'm just guessing that the amount of education you're getting is not going to make it so that you can diagnose properly. And you're not claiming that. But my point is, is that um, just because it seems like some of these labels apply to you does not mean they actually apply to you. That's, that's a very important thing to understand. Also, you're saying, well, I was traumatized, so you know it's possible that I actually do qualify for a number of these uh, labels. And what I'll say to that is, yeah, it's possible. You know, when when people are traumatized, um, a wide variety of disorders uh, in the DSM can develop. And but the the issue here is that when someone does a full assessment of someone like you that may or may not actually qualify for a bunch of labels, what they'll do is they'll pick a a small set, maybe even just one salient label. For example, if you, if you suffer from complex PTSD, which actually isn't in the DSM, but let's just say, let's just say PTSD, then you will also qualify for depressed depression in all likelihood. You'll qualify for anxiety disorders, panic, social anxiety, OCD, maybe, uh, you know, generalized anxiety. You will maybe suffer from attachment disorders that are in the DSM. You might suffer from dissociative disorders. But the salient label might be just PTSD with um, some dissociative features or something. So just because you qualify, just because someone qualifies for a bunch of labels doesn't mean that a diagnostician would actually apply all the labels. I mean, I'm just thinking about what that would look like in my practice. If, if I just read the DSM and with every patient of mine and just thought, okay, well, what are all the labels that would possibly be legitimate labels for this client? I mean, I'm guessing the average person would qualify for like 20 or 30 different labels in the DSM. So, so it, it's, um, and again, that, that should give you some kind of idea of how squishy and how soft of a science diagnosing is, is that when you are suffering, I'm guessing in the medical profession from a broken arm, you don't, you don't qualify for 30 different diagnoses. I mean, maybe you do, maybe there's a whole bunch of different ones. Anyway, the point is, is that the, the number of labels that you, that you qualify for isn't some kind of strange um, thing if you qualify for a bunch. Also, another thing is that at any given time, a third of Americans, and really even potentially of people outside the United States, will qualify for a label at any given time. And half of Americans will qualify for a label in the DSM at some point in their life. So the fact that you qualify or you know you think you qualify for some of these labels is, is, means you're really just a common, normal person, particularly if you've been traumatized. Um, the other thing here that I want to say is that within your email, you're, you're basically saying, oh my God, I, 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 I might qualify for a bunch of labels in the DSM and there's something wrong with me. You're worried there's something wrong with you. And that's, that's something that I hear a lot from people. It's like, oh my God, you know, I have all these labels and it's, and people make jokes, you know, it's like, oh boy, I'm crazy. I got all sorts of labels in the DSM. And this is really wrong-headed in, in my opinion. Number one, like I said, the DSM is just a, a way for us to provide helpful labels. They're just, they're, there's, there's no judgment about 
you know, your, your quality as a human being, if you have, if you qualify for one or more of these labels, there's, there's, it, it shouldn't be associated with that. Um, we, we do in our culture because, you know, we're stupid humans and, and we don't understand how to think logically. And so we equate diagnoses in the DSM as some sort of measure of your worth on this planet or something. Um, but the, the, the way to think about this is, you know, if you've been traumatized, as you say, and you have what I would consider to be extremely normal effects from that trauma, that's normal. There's nothing wrong with you. If someone crashed into you on the highway and you crashed into your car, and as a result of the crash, you broke your arm and you were in pain later, and so you go to the physician, and the physician diagnoses you with you know, a broken arm or some kind of, they messed up your elbow or something, you wouldn't think there was something wrong with you, would you? You, you would just say, oh, man, when that asshole ran into me on the highway, he broke my arm, that God damn it. Well, that's the same when it comes to trauma and labels in the DSM. If, if someone traumatized you or you went through some kind of situational trauma and as a result you have a normal reaction to that, that and that normal reaction consists of experiences and quote-unquote symptoms that uh, allow for a qualified clinician to diagnose you or to label you with something in the DSM, then that means you're normal. When, when people go through trauma, many of those people, if not a majority, have emerged from that experience with some kind of label in the DSM. Plus, even if you were born, quote-unquote, born with a disposition for depression or some other kind of issue in the DSM, and so let's say you weren't traumatized and you're raised really well, and yet you still develop some kind of mental condition like depression, there's, there's no shame in that. So, so there's no path to a mental condition, however many one qualifies for, that it justifies feeling bad about yourself or there's something wrong with you or, or there's something to be alarmed by. It, it, you know, it's sort of like, to me, it's like um, if, if, if you were diagnosed with, say, HIV or cancer, there's a reason, I think, to be terrified of that. Oh, my God, I did, you know, prior to this moment, I didn't know I had cancer, and now I do. Prior to this moment, I didn't know I had HIV, and now I do. And all the implications and, you know, what does this all mean? It's, you know, it's, it's never a good thing. And so, or I don't know, it's rarely a good thing. So, I understand that kind of anxiety, but the anxiety for someone who is, say, like you, who's been traumatized and who probably on a daily basis knows how that trauma has is affecting you, you know, maybe you're a little anxious, maybe you get sad about it or you try not to think about it or um, whatever. I, I have no idea. You didn't tell me anything about that, but you know, you're experiencing those, those quote unquote symptoms. And just because there's a label in the DSM for that doesn't mean that you have, you've suddenly acquired some problem, you know, um, at least from my point of view, I, you know, I'm sure other people could have other ways of looking at it, but the, to me, we just have to define shame and stigma. And really in particular, we have to define what justifiable shame is, and let me let me talk about that for a second. Justifiable shame is knowingly doing something harmful for no good reason. This is my definition. Like stealing from your friend, you know, just because they have something that you want. You know, they they have 
a, a diamond ring that you like, and, and so you just steal it. Well, you should be ashamed of that if, if that's what you're going to do. That's why we have the emotion shame of social and internal shame. It's to regulate behaviors like this where we do something that is not cool. That's why we have shame. So, so that's justifiable shame. The other thing is, is stigma. We have to talk about, well, what is stigma? Because sometimes we equate stigma with shame. Uh, I do it too. It was, you know, it all humans do it. Stigma is something that has been socially constructed by society and culture, and sometimes it's right-headed and sometimes it's wrong-headed. For, you know, we, we tend to have stigma about stigma, I guess. We tend to think, well, stigma is bad. Well, no, Stig- stigma can be very good sometimes. You know, there are stigmas about driving crazy on the highway, for example, or driving drunk on the highway and, and running into people. You know, there, if, if you got drunk and ran into someone and broke their arm, there would be stigma about that, and that's not something you're gonna you're gonna brag about at work on Monday, the, the next work week. So that's 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 right headed stigma. You you should feel bad about that. You should feel some shame about the fact that you drove drunk on the highway and hurt somebody. Or another stigma in our society is you know people who have sex with children. There's stigma about that. Now it can be taken too far, and it can have all these bad effects, but. Uh, that's right-headed stigma. But some stigmas are not right-headed. And I would venture to say most stigmas are not right-headed. You know, for example, qualifying for something in the DSM, uh, you know, being labeled with 15 different disorders from the DSM should carry no stigma with it. That's wrong-headed stigma. We as a society, for whatever reason, a long time ago, probably as a result of capitalism or, I don't know, just something that we don't understand, we decided that people who are quote-unquote crazy are sort of subhuman or they're scary to us or they don't deserve our respect or we or we're worried they're going to kill us or eat our children or I don't know what you know there's all there's just this weird stigma again half of Americans uh, have uh, a label qualify for a label at some point in their life so um, you know, it's extremely mundane to have a dis- to qualify for a disorder in the DSM. So to have stigma around that would, you know, is is silly. It's sort of like the stigma around having um, uh, is it gonorrhea or herpes or one of the one of them. I can't remember. Uh, I got and now I'm pulling out um, uh, uh, statistics out of my butt. But I remember hearing that there's some there's some uh, STI that a majority of Americans have, or a majority of particular demographics have anyway. So it's extremely mundane, and yet no one talks about it. You know, no one or very few people walk around talking about it. Actually, I went years ago, this is uh, 10 years ago, I was invited to be a panelist at a convention in Seattle for people around the world who who have... ASTI. So it was a convention for people to basically come out of the closet with each other. And and it wasn't like some kind of sex meetup. It was it was like a convention like any other at a hotel in Seattle and blah, blah, blah. And people talked about the stigma, the wrongheaded stigma about STIs. And it was interesting because and I was there to talk about how to talk with your spouse or your romantic partners about 
your STI, but before you engage in risky, you know, behavior. And um, so I worked up some kind of thing on that. But the interesting thing was even at this convention with closed doors, people showed up with disguises on, you know, they would show up with wigs and sunglasses on because they didn't, they, even there, they didn't want to have anyone know that, that they had an STI, even though, uh, I can't remember the stat, but a lot of people have STIs, particular STIs, you know, and it's, um, you know, herpes, for example, you get a herpes sore on your mouth and people don't, uh, or I guess most people don't think that's a horrible thing. Anyway, my point is, is that we have a lot of wrongheaded stigma in our society and uh, anonymous patron, what I'm guessing what you're suffering from is wrongheaded stigma around labels in the DSM, and thus you have a wrongheaded shame. And that is unfair to you. It's being imposed on you by society. You've internalized those messages and you're beating yourself up. You uh, need to fight back on that. We all need to fight back on that. We all need to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to believe the hype on that. I'm not going to say that labeling or, you know, qualifying for a label in the DSM is some shameful thing. I'm not going to say that going to therapy is a shameful thing. I, I still experience people today who are shy about the fact that they go to a therapist and I'm, and I'm, and, and they're talking to me and I'm like, you know, I'm a therapist, right? Like there's no shame in you going to therapy. Um, I, that's my job. You know, it's not like I work at a porn shop or something where, I would understand, you know, given the the constraints on society that, uh, uh, you know, any my point there should be any uh, stigma around porn, I, any either. But the, my point is, is that it's it's so shameful. There's so many weird shames, and we have to fight back on that. And that's what I'm, you know, saying to you. <laughs> okay, so let's go on to another email. What do you say? But before that, let's take a break. <music> All right, we're back from the break. This next email is from someone that I I don't have their name, but I'm sorry. They're asking about a couple of questions. Their, their first question is, I am seeing a trend of court-ordered co-parenting counseling. The co-parent counselor is often required to communicate with the court either in a report or directly with the judge and weigh in on custody decisions. How is this not a dual role? Uh, good question. Uh, a question I get a lot and the situation I see a lot of. So basically, if you don't know what this is, essentially what this is, is you have a, a family who that is going through a divorce and the judge will order the parents, divorcing parents, to go to a counselor to talk about how they can both parent their children well through and after the divorce. And that um, doing that will benefit everyone and mostly the kids, but even the parents. So that's what they will do. And sometimes what the judge will do is they will say, okay, I want that counselor to report back at, uh, periodically as they are treating you to help you get along better. And I'm also going to ask that counselor to let me know who they think should have primary custody or something like that. Now, 
this is one particular version of the story. It, uh, it'll go various different ways, but I've certainly seen this before. And so this patron is asking, well, isn't this a dual relationship? And if you're not in the field, uh, a dual relationship, a dual role is when, as therapists, we involve ourselves in more than one role, meaning that you are... So in the dual role in this situation is uh, the therapist being contracted to work with the family is a therapist. So they're helping the family with therapeutic services to help them parent better and get along better and help the kids adjust, help the whole family adjust to divorce better. And they are also in a different role, which is the role of evaluator and the role of court reporter, which is a wholly different role. And the patron is asking, how is this not a dual role? And uh, the answer to that question is, it absolutely is a role, and it's a conflicting role. It's completely conflicting. There are some dual roles that you can justify, like, um, like for example, I. It's the same principle applies to supervisees. So, for example... I have supervisees who are therapists who hire me for to supervise their work with their clients, and I will also see them at social events, like I'll see them at a party or I'll see them at a um, conference or something, and we'll talk. So that is considered in, in our field a dual role. There, I'm bo- I'm providing a supervision service to that person, and I'm also fraternizing with them in uh, to a certain degree in in my social life. Now, they're not my friend. They're n- I don't hang out with them as a friend. I don't they're not, you know, we're not, I don't know, in some other involved relationship. But it is a dual relationship and as long as we enter that dual relationship with care and I make sure that I'm not harming the supervisee and I ask the supervisee how they feel about it, then the risks involved in that dual relationship can be mitigated. However, there is almost no way to mitigate the conflicting tasks and roles involved in providing a therapeutic service and providing a custody battle evaluative service. There's no way. You cannot provide therapeutic services and also provide evaluative services to the same family. It just cannot be done. It's explicitly stated in I believe all the ethical codes. I know it's in the APA code. I'm guessing it's in the ACA code. It's definitely in the marriage and family therapy code. There's a little bit of wiggle room if uh, you really know what you're doing. You know, there are some people who can do this and manage it well, but unless you're supremely confident in your ability to not get sued and to navigate that very risky realm, you really need to avoid this. And it's something that I see people go into all the time. And I have to say, I did too when I first started out because I didn't have good supervision or guidance around this. There's a lot of times where the courts or the lawyers or the clients will ask their family therapist to provide an opinion in court. They'll say, can you please come to court and testify for one thing or another? And because I just didn't know, I would just go. And it never felt right to me. And there was a reason for that. It's because one, I was... I was in a dual role that was extremely problematic. Just for example, um, hypothetically speaking, if you were treating a family for co-parenting and they 
also know that you are evaluating them to determine who is the best parent, and you're going to report to the judge who was the best parent and who was the worst parent. When they show up for therapy sessions, they're going to try to act like they are awesome. And the kids will also know this. So when the kids, when the kids and the parents show up for the counseling and the therapy, they're all going to be affected by that. And, uh, you know, say that, say the kids have decided that dad is a little too strict and for whatever reason, they just want to live with mom because mom is really passive and they get to do whatever they want at her house. And so what they'll do, because they, they know that you're there to evaluate the good and the bad parent, they'll show up and they'll just lie about the dad. They'll go, the dad's really mean and we don't love him and he doesn't love us. And, you know, and it, and so as a therapist, you're trying to help this family actually become, um, you know, a more cohesive, more functioning family. And people are coming to the session lying to you because they're worried you're going to make a decision about their lives in this very critical way that is going to make their life better or worse. And therefore, the therapy is going to suffer greatly because they're not showing up honestly. And that's just one example of the many conflicts that, that can occur in this dual role. So yeah, absolutely, patron, you're right. It is a dual role, and you shouldn't be doing this. The, and no one should be, honestly, in my opinion. Um, there's a very strict line in psychology. There, there's a whole profession of people who provide evaluations for this sort of thing. There's a whole profession of people who are trained to figure out competence of parenting. They will observe the parent. There's a whole system. There's personality tests. There's parenting suitability tests. And it's all scientific. It's all... Um, you know, standard. It's it's basically forensic psychology, and um, it's a field. But just because you're a therapist and you know how to help people have more functioning families, does not mean by default you also know all the things involved in this other profession. And just because you might think you have opinions about, or just because you might think your opinions about a family are valid, doesn't mean that they're valid in a legal sense. So. And that's what a lot of therapists fail to understand is that, you know, just because you know how to provide a therapeutic service or a counseling service doesn't mean you understand forensic psychology. It just doesn't. And, uh, and so, you know, you just have to check your narcissism on that, but more likely it's not narcissism. It's just that you've never been taught that you shouldn't be doing that sort of thing. I can't tell you how many, uh, of the legal cases that I've been a consultant on or, that I've read about that involve this very thing where counselors and therapists will dip into essentially forensic psychology and provide parenting evaluations when they've never been trained for such a thing. And they get sued successfully because it's a dual role, one, which you can get sued over successfully, and they're not competent in providing that opinion. And their opinion was found to be biased. So that is a surefire. And you have a parent who is a victim of your incompetence. And so they will sue you. I mean, you become, you get in the way of a parent and their kids, and they're going to fight you. So you better know what you're doing. So, you know, anytime the court asks you to do stuff like that, if you don't know what you're doing, immediately go to a supervisor or a consultant and figure out 
what, how you should respond. Cause even the way you respond, even if you say, no, I'm not going to do it. There's a, there's a way you need to respond to the courts that keeps you out of trouble. So one is, is yes, it's a dual role. The second thing is, is again, scope of competence. Are you competent in providing that service? And the, the questions you want to ask yourself, if, if anyone ever asks you, please provide, you know, an opinion on custody or, you know, come to court and tell us what the problems are in this family in relation to custody. The question you have to ask yourself is, is how many classes or supervision or internship experience have you taken on how to evaluate custody? Just ask yourself that, you know, if anyone ever asks you to weigh in officially on custody and provide any kind of comment on custody, just ask yourself, how many classes about custody and parenting fitness have you taken in a legal sense, in a forensic sense? How many tests have you ran? How many people have you consulted with about this matter? Or are you just speaking off the top of your head? And I can tell you from experience, because I didn't have good guidance at the beginning of my career, that's what I did. People would ask me my opinion. I'd be like, well, I think, I think the kids would be better off with the dad. But that's just my clinical opinion, which is fine. But when you submit that to a court, like you better know what you're doing. And there's a, again, there's a whole profession. Other questions, you know, how many classes and supervision and internship experience have you had on how to report to the court? How, how much supervision have you had regarding writing a report to the court? How, how much supervision have you had regarding um, how to not get sued during a custody battle? How many classes have you taken on how to not get sued during a custody battle. If you haven't taken any classes or received any supervision or you know su- sufficient experience, supervised experience doing those things, then don't do it. Because the answer is you, ha- you don't know what you're doing. Just because you think you know what you're doing or just because someone thinks you should know that task doesn't mean you actually know how to do that. And uh, again, I've seen so many people get sued this way. The other thing to, t- to keep in mind is just because the court asks you to do something does not mean that it's legal or not risky. Just because your clients ask you, just because a lawyer asks you, again, just because a, a judge asks just because your supervisor asks you, actually, does not mean that you are doing something that is legal and not risky. You know, a court has, a courts have asked me to do things over the years that have been extremely risky to my career. And in the beginning, I was really confused by that. But over time, I figured out that one, judges are human beings who have limited knowledge. These are not geniuses. They're just regular workers. You know, they're just regular government workers. And boy, do they not know some things. And boy, do they not understand the field of family therapy. I didn't meet a single judge, and I met dozens, who really fully grasped what therapy was for. I mean, maybe they did, but they didn't exhibit that they got it. And, and there were some judges that supremely did not understand what family therapy was and were bullies and, and abusive as judges. And so now some judges were nice, you know, but, but the point is, is that just because a judge asks you to do something doesn't mean that you're supposed to do it. Um, it's not like you can say, you know, well, the judge told me to, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't save you from doing, from needing to follow your own professional ethical codes. Um, and again, just because a client asks you, or just because the client says, well, a judge asked me to ask you, don't be intimidated by that. Say, you know, well, they've asked me, let me look into making sure that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Let me make sure that I'm competent. Let me make sure that there's no risk to my career. Um, You know, you really want to push back on that. And my general rule for novice 
therapists and my supervisees is that you will not do when I when I first take people as supervisees, what I tell them is unless you can demonstrate to me that you really know what you're doing, you are forbidden from involving yourself in any court proceeding. You know, if so, just so you know, as as your supervisor, if anyone asks you to do anything in court, you cannot do that unless you can prove to me prior to doing the action that you know what you're doing and that you and I are not getting in any kind of risk here. Because the fact is, if they go out and do something unethical and get sued, I can get sued too as their supervisor. And so what I tell them is, you're forbidden from doing that. And the universal response from my ther- from my supervisees about that is, thank you for saying that, because I don't want to do anything in the court, <laughs> is what they say. Uh, the court scares me. And what I say is, is, well, good. It's good fear, because it's a scary place. And unless you really know what you're doing, um, that fear and that ignorance will bite in the ass. Having said all that, you, you know, you were, what you're talking about is co-parenting and, uh, co-parenting counseling is great. I've been doing this for years. Um, I don't call it co-parenting counseling because I've been doing it before that was a term. It's just called family therapy or couples therapy or marital therapy or divorce therapy or something. All these phrases I really just, I mean, some author comes out and says, Oh, co-parenting counseling. It's like, okay, it's also just called family therapy, you know? Um, but anyway, uh, that's just the pet peeve of mine. The point is, is yes, uh, co-parenting, family therapy, it's a thing and it's a wonderful thing. And if every divorcing couple did this and those who couldn't afford it had it paid for, the world would be a much better place. I'm, I, I'm here to tell you that. Um, and when I have provided this service, I've, I've sent letters to courts saying that they've attended, uh, but I don't provide an evaluation. You know, even if the judge explicitly asks me, um, I need I need you to testify in your opinion about, um, you know, custody regarding these two parents. And then they drag me into court and they subpoena me. And I there's certain subpoenas you have to attend. And so I'll go and I'll, I'll sit on the stand and they will ask me questions and, and they'll say, you know, oh, so what's your opinion about the um, custody between these two people? Who, who do you think is more? suitable as a parent moving forward. And I'll say, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have an opinion on that because I was providing therapeutic services and, um, I ethically cannot provide that opinion because that's a dual role. Um, and what I told the family, if, if they need someone to provide an opinion on that, they need to hire a separate professional that is not providing therapeutic services and therefore won't be biased. And uh, they will be able to evaluate thoroughly and provide a forensic legal opinion on that very question. But I cannot because I, I'm a therapist and um, that is not my job. It's not my job as a therapist to evaluate um, whether or not a parent is a good parent. It's my job to provide a therapeutic service, and that's what I did. And often all I need to do is send the judge a email about that and they don't ask me to come because I'm just going to waste everyone's time. And you have the, you know, you have the ability to do that. And there's, there's nothing anyone can do to you if you do that. In fact, if you don't do that, they can do a lot of things to you. Um, on the other side, I have provided forensic evaluations and have provided uh, court, you know, reports or reports that have been used in court. And but with those clients, I was not their therapist. I was only their evaluator. 
Um, okay. So moving on with your questions here, patron, you said, I just took a workshop about, so it's this co-parenting, uh, workshop thing. Uh, during the workshop, um, was given by a a marriage and family therapist who works as a co-parent counselor. But I thought she was so demeaning to her clients. It seemed like she really hated her clients and called them things like immature and failures as parents. Yeesh. And she showed a cartoon image depicting the parents as fat, big-nosed, screaming babies titled What High Conflict Parents Look Like. Yikes. Um... Yeah, I've seen this before. I've talked about it before on the podcast. There are some people in our field that when you uh, consult or, you know, you get them away from their clients and they speak freely, they exhibit a very hostile, what I would call actually immature attitude about their clients, a very um, jaded, judgmental attitude where it seems like, yeah, it's this, it, the impression I get about these clinicians is they hate their clients and they're just secretly judging them the entire time. And it's abhorrent and it's immoral to be that way, in my opinion. It's not just unprofessional, obviously, but it's also an immoral act. You know, people come to you for help. They are suffering. And when you are secretly judging them and making fun of them. It's like kicking someone when they're down, honestly. And it's like kicking someone who's down, who's asking for you to help them get up. Uh, It's despicable to me. And these people need to go away for a while. They need to go away and heal from their wounds, their childhood wounds or whatever, and, and maybe consider coming back. Or they need to go away and heal from their burnout. Maybe they're just burnt out and they need, need a break for sure. Just go away, take a break get your compassion back and come back when that happens. Or honestly, those people just need to stay away uh, because uh, I don't like it. The other thing is that I'll say, unfortunately in our profession, there are pockets within our cult, within our profession where there's a certain culture of animosity towards clients. And I've talked about this before, but I'll be at a, you know, I've worked at a number of different contacts and agencies and stuff. And you'll go to a case consultation group where it's just a bunch of clinicians sitting in a circle talking about their cases and other kinds of stuff. And there are some groups who will talk very uh, mean about their own clients. They'll be like, oh, I got so-and-so again, you know, that borderline cutter, I got her again. She's driving me crazy. I can't wait for her to drop out of therapy. You know, just really hateful, what I consider to be immature, immoral, hostile, just ridiculous attitudinal attitudinal statements about um, judgments about their own clients. Look, I if you need to vent, for sure. If you're suffering, you know, get it off your chest. But at the end of the day, you have to come back to compassion. You have to balance yourself out and say, well, you know, the reason why they're giving me trouble is because they have problems and because they were traumatized or because they're scared or something. And, you know, it, 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 it certainly makes it hard for me as a clinician trying to help them. But I, I see why it's happening. You know, it's, it's not, I'm not going to take it personal and, the clients aren't evil and they're, they're really trying. And I'm, you know, so, so, so again, it's okay to vent. That's good. It's good to vent. But 
at, in the end of that venting period, there needs to be a balance and there needs to be perspective and there needs to be compassion. And if you can't do that, then you just need to go away. In my opinion, you know, there's many professions on this planet that it's fine to judge your, um, customers or whatever there, you know, if you're a McDonald's cashier, you know, feel free to judge your, the customers. Oh, that customer, that's a stupid, you know, that's fine. It doesn't interfere with your ability to take someone's order. If you're a, um, if you're a CEO of, or if you're a business owner, you know, you, you own a shop that sells jeans, you know, feel free to talk shit about your customers. It's fine. It doesn't matter because the people are coming to you for jeans. They're not coming to you for compassion. People are coming to us because they're suffering and they need our compassion and they need us to care. And if you can't do that, then you need to not be close to your patients. You need to actually go somewhere else and do a different job. In my opinion, again, all of us have our bad days. All of us slip into judgment every once in a while. But this sort of toxic toxic hostility that I see among um, some of these clinicians that I'm sort of referencing, it, it's, it's every day and it never ends. And when I try to say something like, well, you know, let's try to take it easy on these, you know, these people are suffering. Let's, let's try to keep it all in mind. They'll be like, well, you know, and then they just go right back to it. And so... Um, that's what I'm talking about is that sort of, and I've seen it so many times uh, there's, and it feeds off each other. So, you know, if you get two people who are two clinicians who are like this, they'll sort of like, uh, you know, enhance each other's judgment and negativity about the clients. And then other people kind of feel like they need to join in to, to feel like they're a part of the group to be accepted by the group. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta laugh at that client a little bit. You gotta join in. And I've, and I've been there and I just, I hate it. I just think it's, um, and, and I see it towards students too. I'll see professors get together at my university and it's same attitude. You know, it's like, Oh boy, you wouldn't believe the batch I got this time. And every time it just, it hurts me. I'm thinking again, vent. Sure. You're stressed out. Um, you know, you, you're confused. You have a few students that you're, you know, you're a little confused by, but to just have a general attitude of just like us versus them, those idiots, you know, those idiot kids and those idiot, you know, it's, it just, it can't be good for the soul and it can't be good for the profession and it can't be good for the students and for the clients. It just can't be. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do.